Hello and welcome to Accommodation Matters, your monthly guide to the issues that affect student accommodation. And today we're thinking big, we're taking a wide view, a global perspective on student accommodation. So we're going to be looking at what the residential experience looks like in different countries and also the experiences of international students when they come to these countries. My name's Jenny Shaw. I'm the Higher Education External Engagement Director for Unite Students. And today I have with me an international panel. So please, can I ask you each to introduce yourselves and say where you're joining us from? Marion, can we start with you? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Marion Bailey. I'm the CEO of Deakin Residential Services, but I'm also the president of the Asia Pacific Student Accommodation Association. Um, and I'm joining you from Melbourne, Australia. That's great. And we should say you are actually in student accommodation as we oh, speak. Yeah. Are you right yes. now, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Tim. Hi, I'm Tim Daplin. I'm the Head of Strategy at Global Student Living. Um, as well as our news and events output, we run the Global Student Living Index, which is an international benchmarking survey on student experience within accommodation. And I am connecting in from the UK here. Brilliant. Thank you. And Emily. Good morning. I'm Emily Hulson. I'm the campus manager for CU London in North Greenwich at the moment. Um, so joining from London, but I've worked in residence life at Michigan State University alongside some other roles in the last 20 years. That's great. Thank you very much. And Pin. Hey, everyone. Um, my name's Pin. So originally from Malaysia, but now joining you all from uh, Bristol, UK. So I moved to the UK 13 years ago, and I currently work for United Students with Jenny. Great. Thank you. Thanks to all of you. So we're going to jump straight into it. And we're going to start by looking at similarities and differences in student accommodation in different parts of the world. So, Tim, if I can start with you, you're the proprietor of the Global Student Living Index. So you've got a huge amount of knowledge. You've got a huge amount of data on this. Could you give us just a bit of a flavor of some of the differences between countries when it comes to student accommodation? Yeah, sure. Well, there are some noticeable, visible differences between accommodation in different countries and facilities. For example, room size um, tends to be much larger in the US, for example. But before I dive into that, it's probably worth giving our UK listeners a bit of context, because as is so often the case, when we, from a UK perspective, we look at what the international market looks like, it's actually the UK that is very strange in many ways. So it's worth us understanding that a bit. So the UK overall would geographically fits roughly in the same sort of surface land area as the Australian state of Victoria, which is the second smallest Australian state. Uh, it would fit twice easily inside California. Yet we've got a huge number of institutions, a massive higher education population. And the key difference, I think, from most countries is that we have a long history and a normalisation around leaving home to study in the UK, which is very different to most other countries. And Something like eight out of 10 higher education students in the UK will leave home to study, even if they're not traveling very far. It's just sort of seen as a bit of a rite of passage. So the biggest difference, I think, between accommodation in the UK and in, in most other international student accommodation markets is that in most other places in the world, the, the purpose-built student accommodation is very firmly focused on the international market. I think a lot of the differences, although we see beautiful examples of shiny new buildings going up with cinema rooms and pools and gyms and all that sort of stuff, the big differences, I think, really come in the way that a student accommodation handles the diversity of culture that it has to, to deal with. In Australia, for example, and Marion will be able to speak to this in more detail, there's a much lower propensity for Australian students to, to travel to study. The vast majority of Australian higher education students are already living in a state capital. 
And most purpose-built student accommodation in Australia will be serving, certainly modern accommodation, will be serving the international market, particularly the Chinese market. And so uh, as a starting point, if you're running a student accommodation in which you are dealing with primarily an international audience, you don't start with the assumption that you're dealing with a domestic audience and then layer international considerations over the top, as we sometimes do in the UK. So in the UK, we sometimes have this attitude that we've got a sort of a cultural ballast, if you like, of UK students. And then we think about, well, how do we integrate international students into that? And I think that's slightly different in other markets where you're starting from a presumption that you've got a diversity of students that you've got to try and integrate together or find ways to build community around those students. So it's around the service provision and the way that you set up introductions and welcomes that tends to be a little bit different, I think. Thanks, Tim. Marion, I am going to come straight to you as we've been talking about Australia. So Tim has talked about the primarily international market. Is that what you see in Australia? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, Australia sort of has this conundrum because we all call ourselves sort of PBSA because it's purpose-built student accommodation. But actually in Australia, PBSA is is solely referring to commercial providers. So in our main capital cities, we have 84% of our student population sits in the eight capital cities. So certainly that's where we're seeing the growth market and and PBSA for us is relatively new compared to the UK as it's sort of come into the country here in Australia and and grown at a pretty rapid rate. Um, So that's kind of one segment but the segment's actually split into three segments and and university owned and operated is still very strong as well as the residential college model which is generally sort of affiliated or federated colleges that may be from a, a religious or secular background. So There's a real definition of three types of accommodation in Australia and the identification with that when you talk about cultural awareness, Tim, I really resonate with that because it's it's probably very much stronger in that domestic environment in those residential colleges and university owned operated, whereas the PBSA market is absolutely targeting international and we were seeing 10% occupancy when international borders were closed in those PBSA providers because it just completely decimated their operating models. It is quite interesting. Um, We all get along well, depending which sector of the industry you're from. But there is definitely a a difference in focus. Yeah, it's an interesting market, but absolutely agree. There's slightly different lens across the cultural provision and also the standard of accommodation that those three markets are in. Our PBSA is very new and shiny. um, And we have slides going down buildings and all sorts of fun things like you've described, Tim, when it comes to what's the next shiny thing that we're looking at. Um, residential colleges are the large dining halls and, and very much that traditional, fully catered experience, much smaller models of sort of 200 students and, and academic support and universities somewhere in between still building on campuses. So, yeah, it's a very diverse industry. And is it primarily for international students? I think it's changed. I grew up in the UK and went to university in the UK, and so it was very much um, of, of that ilk of you moved away from home to go to university. That was the whole point of going to university. And when I arrived in Australia 20 years ago, that was not the case. People were going to their local institution, whatever that might be, and not travelling. I think that's shifting, and we are seeing interstate travelling into our accommodation. So we've got, you know, in Victoria here, we have people coming in from New South Wales and Queensland, and they're doing that kind of rite of passage from a domestic perspective. But certainly the international market is what is attracting investors and developers into student accommodation and, and our Chinese market and Indian market is is huge. Yeah, and how interesting though to see that that growth in that rite of passage going away from home because we've seen it in the UK since the 60s. How interesting to see that that's quite a new thing in, in Australia. Um, Emily, can I come over to you just to ask you a bit about the US market? Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, of course. Big differences, I would say, which uh, Tim has mentioned too. There's a live-on requirement in most of these institutions. So first years, sometimes second years, have to live on campus. At Michigan State, for instance, most of those students were legacy students. So their parents have gone to Michigan State. They came to Michigan State. They lived half an hour away, but still had to live on campus. I was like, wait, what? That's so expensive. <laughs> but they had to do it. It was part of it. And, and it became clear why, right? Their models are very strong in terms of programming, in terms of community building. The role of the resident assistant is like I've never seen anywhere else in terms of not just community building, but as a leadership development role. If you compare that to the UK, I think here, clubs and societies tend to be more those student organizations that really develop the skills that we always talk about that students have. Well, in the US, that's definitely an RA or an equivalent of a resident assistant, really. What I struggled with the most, I guess, was <laughs> from my professional role is most of the rooms were shared. So you don't live by yourself unless you become a sophomore, a junior, a senior. So the challenges that came with that, the conflict that came with that. But we see that too when we have shared kitchens and the milk gets stolen. But um, yeah, sometimes that would really, really seep into daily life. And then it was hard for an RA or, or community director or whatever the type of role was to, to sometimes really put that in perspective and say, hey, how are we going to resolve this? Dining halls, as Tim has mentioned, they were massive. I mean, Michigan State had 17,000 students live on campus. Uh, it was a city in itself. So you had choice of dining halls, breakfast, lunch, dinner. And I was obviously an international student myself there. It was very overwhelming. But what I did like, which I didn't have as an international student coming into the UK, was that international students were not separated. So you are in halls depending on the major you decide, the course or the program of study you decide, your interests that you might have. So you might be matched with your roommate or matched with the community, living learning community you want to be in. So it really depends on that rather than my experience here was I came from Belgium. I was put in a small hall of residence with all the international students. And I know there are still many universities that do this and it's one of my pet peeves. And I don't think it's good for, for anybody, particularly home students, actually. And then the last bit really is around embedding res life in academics and, and in daily life of studying. I had faculty members living in the halls with me. We had classrooms in the halls of residence alongside a shop and a dining hall and sports facilities, etc. So they really build that whole experience around the students. When I saw interactions between faculty, staff and students um, and how that seamlessly connected, there's some work for us to do in the UK around that, I think. The model you're describing does sound quite like Oxford or Cambridge. You yeah. know, it's, it's quite a collegiate model, isn't it, where that living experience is part of your education? Yeah, very much so. Um, helping students to find their way in their experience and really find their spot and their place of where they belong. That's not to say it's always been easy. Like I said, the, the, the roommate conflict was probably the number one thing that we saw, but that's part of life. Um, and that's part of, of us being there in our roles to make sure that we could navigate that with the students. Yeah, and, and what's coming to mind for me is, is how valuable those skills that are developed would be for an employer. So if I was looking to employ someone, I would, I would very much value those uh, skills of being able to relate to people from different parts of the world, having those uh, 
sort of intercultural skills. Yeah, so I can absolutely. See Even the recruitment of resident assistants, we had thousands of students applying for this role and that's what we sold it as, right? This is how you become more employable. This is how you can use your skills to, to make sure that you become that standout person when it comes difficult in employment. They were, from what I heard, the real MVPs during COVID, those RAs and live on staff. I heard stories that I'm like, oh my God, um, you really saved people's lives at times. I think the role here in the UK is evolving. And I've seen that probably more in uh, private accommodation than university accommodation, actually. But those roles even, it wasn't just an RA, there would be program associates that worked with faculty to co-teach first-year students. So the student-staff partnership that we often talk about in the UK is far more developed in the US. Emily, it's quite interesting that um, you mentioned that we, we have a model at Deakin, which is volunteer residential leaders, so we don't pay our RAs at all. That model was gone and, and we have 24-hour staff on site, but we have um, residential leaders and they do it for the leadership skills. And when we moved from a paid RA model eight years ago to that, there was this nervousness around, are we going to get leaders that actually want to do it? They don't get their rent paid. They don't get anything. And interestingly, we've seen a growth in applicants for the roles, but it comes back to that graduate outcome of really valuing in a very tight market, being able to walk into an interview and show those conflict skills, Mm -hmm. resolution, community building, engaging, mentoring is amazing for them and stands them apart when they, they then move on from student to common out into the community. But I think the crux of it is really around how you support those RAs. And we did like a month training program, very intense. How do you keep on supporting those RAs? If they feel safe, supported, empowered to actually run their programs and work with their residents, then the remuneration, so to say, whatever package that may be, doesn't matter as much, but they need to feel supported. Pin, I'd like to bring you in at this stage because uh, I know we're going to talk later about your experiences as an international student, but you've been kind of rebuilding from the ground up almost our resident ambassador program, haven't you? It's interesting, Emily, you said there's a lot of innovation coming out through the private sector. Pin, you're sort of at the forefront of that for Unite, certainly. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing and what models you've been looking at and what's really working? Yes, of course. Um, Marion and Emily, you know, listening to you to talk about resident assistance, uh, my eyes just lit up. You know, um, we use the same RA, but um, over here at Unite in the UK, we, um, we're using the resident ambassador system. I really, really want to say that the, the support piece, the community piece is absolutely crucial. Over COVID, students helped each other. It was very, very clear that they looked at each other for peer-to-peer support rather than uh, the PBSA providers that they lived in. Therefore, the resident ambassador scheme that we're running this year revolves around focusing and figuring out what the voice of that customer is, our students, so that we can really hone in on the messages that matter. It is a sort of a layered system. So we have a resident ambassador champions who are staff, and they are provided with coaching, knowledge, as well as guidance from sort of management teams within Unite to be able to coach our resident ambassadors. Because like you said, uh, 18, 19, 20-year-olds coming into student accommodation and then, you know, having to look after large communities is, is something quite scary and frightening. But we've absolutely seen them thrive and unite. As long as they have their good support model behind them, the world's the oyster. You know, they can do everything. They have so many good ideas. They interact with their peers so well, you know, social media, uh, just word of mouth. But it all comes down to are they supported? Are they encouraged to be who they are? And are they encouraged to lead? So yeah, those are the aspects that we really, really hone in on, on the ambassador system in Unite. It's really, really heartwarming to hear that this is happening all across the world. 
I think the US and Australia have a more sophisticated developed system. We have a bit more work to do in the UK, but you know, no doubt we'll, we'll get there. And then Mary and Emily, you've also mentioned this, the issue of community. One of the advantages of having a strong RA system in place is actually the piece almost below community, which is about belonging. Because what we see sometimes in the UK is, is community is what we want to achieve, but it's a kind of shared experience. <laughs> it's, a, it's quite a hard thing to pin down. It's very hard to manufacture until unless individuals within that community feel a sense of belonging. And that's where the staff come in. That's where the RAs come in. That's where the people are so important. And we've sometimes seen development of residential life programs or community building programs that almost skip out the belonging bit and try to jump straight to the community. And you, you just, you can't do that. And I think it's establishing a sound community value system. We have our respect community values here at Deakin. Fundamentally, it is the basis for getting everyone on the same page. So when you talk about international culture and people coming with different attitudes and different expectations and, and different ideas of what is acceptable behaviour and not acceptable behaviour or what is fun and what's not fun, you need a basis. And so that community value agreement is we all agree, regardless of background, culture, gender, diversity, et cetera, that we will live by this. By having that buy-in really up front and we, we have students doing online induction, accepting all of that and, and understanding it, then you start to have a basis to come back to when things aren't going quite that well. And, and like Emily said, you know, the dishes in the sink and the day-to-day things, it can blow into quite significant issues when you're living with it 24-7. If you can bring it back to that basic understanding of community value set, it's really important because you can build on that then and that starts to breathe into all aspects of your programming and your education and everything else. I, I think it's a really key point because there has been a a real interest in the that sense of belonging or the term belonging in the UK over the last year. I've seen research reports come out about it. You've, you've talked about it, Marion, in the sense of the Australian system. Is a sense of belonging a goal for you? In, yeah, in- absolutely. And, and when we talk about surveying our residents or getting that community feedback, our top five questions are about, do you feel a sense of belonging? And that's a direct question we're asking twice a year, both after orientation transition and towards the end of the year before they depart each year. So it's a key indicator, specifically asking, do they feel a sense of belonging? So we're using that language with them from the get-go. I imagine, Marion, as well, that you measure that twice a year. That sense of belonging is so important to get right at arrivals right at the start because it can sound a bit nebulous, but if you just turn around and say, do I feel like I belong here? That's very easy for people to actually answer that question. It's a really easy question to answer, but it's, it's harder to make people feel a certain way. Yeah. I imagine that, that when you look at the data, you can see that it's really important to establish that very early. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Once people are committed, that sense of belonging drives a, a massive sense of commitment to your community. Incredibly important. Yeah. So I'm going to move us on to talking about international students. I do want to come to you first, Pin, because I've heard you talk before about your experiences as an international student and it's incredibly compelling to hear that from you so do tell us a little bit about that. I remember coming over to the UK 13 years ago now very very clearly you know it was a long flight from Malaysia it's 14 hours I was really retired I was with my sister at the time now I was very very fortunate you know I came over to the UK with my family and we know that a lot of international students come over here on their own so already I was a, a step a step better I remember I was on a megabus coming from London to Bristol and I was super tired, but all I wanted to find was this uh, red telephone booth that you see iconically everywhere. It may not seem like a lot, but what they really symbolized to me was that my journey was now real. I was here now in the UK. I wasn't looking at that 
picture on a, on a screen back home in Malaysia anymore. Funny story, actually, that um, when I first walked into sort of sixth form in Bristol, and I remember walking through the common room and the year 12s and year 13s all sat there. And the minute someone new walks in, everyone just stares at you. But the head of six at the time is the Hayes. You know, he took me over to Tom and Amy, the head boy and girl. And uh, he said, Tom, Amy, this is Pin. He's new. Don't break him. And instantly I thought, oh, my God, what, what have I gotten myself into here? You know, but no, they were great. Uh, Tom, maybe if you're, if you're listening to this by any chance, you were great. They really helped me find my feet during the first few weeks in this new country. That's a really strong experience I've sort of taken on and uh, tried to embed within the ambassador program, uh, which we'll talk about later on. I remember going to university as well. You know, I was super excited. You know, it was worry, it was anxiety, but there was also this overwhelming sense of excitement to meet new people and sort of experience this university life in, in this new chapter of my life. And, you know, during, during my time at university, my first year especially, I was speaking to my flatmates at university. And funnily enough, they were all internationals. So they all put the internationals in the same flat. <laughs> I know we had um, one from Canada, one from Spain, one from Poland, one from China and myself, you know. And instantly, you know, it's the first question of where are you from? And we really bonded with that. You know, we're in the same boat here. It really helped us build that rapport straight away. I had a great time at university. Who doesn't? I feel that it's such a privilege to be able to leave home and to be able to see the world as well as obtain an education. Student accommodation providers like ourselves, we now play a part in shaping that experience for our students and uh, we should be really proud to do so and, and to do well. It always strikes me, Pin, how vivid those memories are for you, even you know, so many years afterwards. And I wonder how you have used that sort of vivid emotion that you can still recall, how you use that to shape the experience for international students in your role now. Yeah, so I feel like the most important part of the puzzle is designing a home base, an anchor for international students, a sense of belonging piece, a community piece where international students come over here and they feel safe. Now, this can exist in a couple of different forms. They could exist in a community with domestic students, but we found that sometimes it's more effective if you were in a community with people from the same country, just as a starting point, you know, to help you assimilate, you know, go around the place together so that you're not on your own. And this can be as small as one, two, three people, because what we've realized, international students, they're very, very well resourced, you know, they'll be able to find each other really, really easily. But this home base, which going back to Tom and Amy, shout out to you guys again, they were my home base. They helped me find my feet in this country, I didn't, I didn't know anything. Obviously, I read stuff online, but it never prepared you for the nuances in culture, in English society. And that's what's really led me to shape that uh, ambassador experience uh, for international students. And that comes through the resident ambassador system. The idea here is that we have ambassadors in property, helping people settle in, be it domestic students, be it international students. We want them to feel safe. We always talk about events. So some internationals may feel quite anxious and nervous about meeting a lot of new random people because if it doesn't really quite hit the mark or it's not what internationals are looking for, they won't do it. They will go and find something else that they want to do. The sort of term or theme that we use is choosing at your own pace, mixing when you're comfortable. A lot of internationals want to experience a different culture. They appreciate the events that remind them of home, you know, your Chinese New Year's, your Lantern Mooncake Festivals and stuff like that for our Chinese students. But what they really like to do is experience the culture and the differences in the UK. We have this this term in Chinese called wenhua, which means words and flowers. But essentially it's what are the words and what are the flowers of a of a different society, different culture. They're really, really interested in that. That's why you see a lot of internationals when they come over here in the first year they 
don't go and explore Europe. They first go and explore the UK. They go to the Oxfords, the Cambridge, the Bath, the Stonehenges, the Londons. When I look back at it, I did the same thing, you know. <laughs> so yeah, that's how we sort of use my experiences, try to sort of hone in and translate this to ambassadors. I'm, I'm curious, Pin, about how you balance that need for international students to feel a sense of belonging and to have some connection with other international students or the diaspora that's in the, the, the area that they're in, whilst providing opportunities to learn about local culture and to immerse in, in local culture and how you get that balance right. I think it's, it's a huge bit about choice. I think internationals are more curious than, than most. They're, they're here, they're already taking that first step out. So it's providing a selection of events, activities happening, and really allow them to you know, bring their friends if they want from a different property. And it needs to sing to them, you know, come and meet new people. However, don't feel worried, don't feel shy. There's going to be a lot of people here in, in your position and you guys can all do something fun together. I'd like to add in one thing when we think about international students that they may not see themselves firstly identifying as an international student because we talk often about, well, international students need this, this, this and this, but it's layered, isn't it? It's very complex as it is for every any student really. So I think there's sometimes a bit of a danger in putting an assumption or a stereotype around what an international student um, or whoever that may even be. And I think that could potentially be more harmful than useful for them. So I think it's on us as those professionals to make sure we do the most in understanding the need of home cultures for those students without um, those international students feeling they have to assimilate. When, When as an international student, you then add that into the mix of having to learn, live, maybe get a job, looking at what you're going to do afterwards. It's a lot. It's a lot to take. So I think us as professionals should be doing absolutely the most in educating ourselves. That's on us. That's absolutely on us. And it it probably comes back to that sense of belonging piece we had before, because I know being English born and bred in Australia, I feel like I'll never be Australian. I'm a citizen here, but you know, you never be a real Aussie. And then you go home and they're like, you're so Australian. And I'm like, really? So you have this weird sense of not really belonging anywhere anymore because you're a dual citizen or whatever it might be. And, um, and so you can really empathize with that. And I, think, I think as well, as the international student market diversifies and we get new markets coming on stream, we're also going to see deeper penetration into some of those markets where there are middle classes developing and we will have more diversity within individual international cohorts, if you like. So we need to be aware of that and understand that the relatively small set of Nigerian students we have from coming to the UK previously is going to be quite different to the larger mass of Nigerian students that may follow. And the same is true with Chinese students and other international students is that global kind of middle class grows. One thing I do want to touch on, I think we'll do it quite briefly, is in the UK, we're very used to now having lots of Chinese students coming over, students from Malaysia, and neighbouring countries as well, and mainland Europe. But we are now starting to see some new emerging markets. We're seeing students increasingly interested in coming over from India, from Nigeria. Uh, Indonesia is a growing market as well. I just wanted to see how that patterns out across different parts of the world. Marion in particular, I mean, you're very close to the Chinese market in Australia. It's, it's not, not quite as far to go. Are you seeing some of these emerging markets as well in, in Australia or is it still very dominated by Chinese students? 
Um, I think it is dominated by Chinese students, but what we're seeing is um, the enrolments of Chinese students is still our major market in Australia, but 50% of them are still offshore and not, not returning to Australia. So we have a bit of a geopolitical circumstance happening over here with Australia and, and China. So we're seeing that a lot of them are remaining enrolled, but not returning to onshore when they can, whereas the Indian market has always been quite strong for us. So it's, it's not necessarily an emerging market particularly at Deakin, we've had more Indian students than Chinese students historically here, and their return has been instant. So there's more onshore Indian students in Victoria at the moment than there are Chinese, even though their total is a lot less of enrolled students. So the emerging markets for us, and it would be geographical location, is really around Vietnam, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, um, that we're seeing come through as emerging markets for Australia now. And of course, you're very close to other student accommodation professionals across the Asia-Pacific region as well, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Working very closely with New Zealand. Yeah, it's a very different market, but again, highly international, particularly in Auckland and Christchurch. They're probably quite similar to the UK in their market. So they've been very Chinese focused and, and are seeing India starting to go into that market in New Zealand. We have um, some members in, in APSA from Malaysia and, and that market's growing, although it was a really tough time during COVID over there and, and a lot of beds were taken back by government. And again, their political landscape's been quite tumultuous over the last 12 months. So that's having impacts. But we've been amazed by the rebound. I think we all sat in 2021 saying in Australia, we had extensive lockdowns, international borders were closed, the impacts were, were massive. And so there was an assumption that was going to actually put people off returning to Australia and coming back on shore. And so in 2021, we were kind of talking about pre-COVID hitting around 24, 25 at best. What we've seen is as soon as the borders opened, a huge return. And as you said, that curiosity of internationals just wanting to get back into country. So that's sort of expedited and probably doubled what we had anticipated in 22 and, and looking more like 23, 24 will be back to pre-COVID numbers, which is amazing. Thank you very much. So we are coming towards the end of our time now. I'm aware we've got a, an incredibly diverse panel with diverse perspectives today. So I would like to finish by asking each of you, what's one thing that you would like to share with student accommodation professionals that's maybe not very widely known? Pin, can I start with you? The biggest one for me is that we should always listen and involve our students in the decision making. You know, there's a general sentiment in the PBSA industry that, you know, we just house students and that's it. But we can be so much more. And today's podcast has absolutely proven that. The upcoming generation, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, is a, is a super vocal one um, and they will be heard. So in Unite, we've been running student panels and ambassador forums for the last six months. And the insight that they've given us has been so, so important. And student accommodation should always involve students listen to them, involve them, and then create something that we're both proud of together. That's brilliant. Thank you. Tim? I think the one message I would get across is just how important professionals working in this sector are to the whole sector and to the students they work with. So we know from the data, for example, that students who have a negative experience of their accommodation are 10 to 12 times more likely to drop out with all the horrible consequences that come with that. So Giving students a positive experience in that accommodation, which is almost always led by the personal interactions they have with stuff, whether it's the front desk, it's the security staff, it's everybody involved, is so important. And the value of student accommodation is shown up in, in again, other data that we see where actually the majority of, of students, far from struggling in their student accommodation, say their student accommodation has actually positively enhanced their sense of well-being. That's a real testament to the work that people in the sector do. So well done, I guess, is what I'd say. That's great. Thank you, Tim. And Emily? 
Um, alluding to what we said earlier, I would say there is decades worth of research in the US related to accommodation, identities, circumstances. So put noses in books, read it, take it in. I was privileged to have that as part of my course, so I was made to do it. <laughs> but absolutely, um, data is a lot, but putting that data within theory and then putting it into your own practice makes all of us better professionals. There's so many journals that exist around student development. Wherever you can is your professional development. But as Pin said earlier, what we owe to the students really is, is not just read the research, do the research. Even Unite coming out with, with your own research very recently around the Black student experience in halls of residence. Absolutely amazing. Need more of that in the UK as well. Thank you. And finally, Marion. Remember your why. Why are we doing this? I think it's really important to remember that um, and bring your true self because you know, often we try and fit a mould of, of what our profession should be or who should, we should be at work. And if you don't bring your true self, then we're not bringing the diversity that we've had. And to sit in here, just this conversation um, brings with it such value. And I think we really need to make sure we bring our true selves because then we've got that diversity of opinion and we can really grow as people. Thank you so much. You've been an absolutely wonderful panel today. And I'd like to thank you as well for listening. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Please do subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform so you'll never miss an episode. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, do consider joining others in giving us a five-star rating. Take care and we'll be back with you soon.